Last week we finished the book of first, the epistle First Thessalonians, and, and it was a wonderful time in the book. And I thought that it would be good to continue on as First and Second Thessalonians, much like First uh, and Second Corinthians, are, are are deeply linked. And while we didn't move on to Second Corinthians when we finished that series because they're both very long epistles, Second Thessalonians will not take us too long. And having had that foundation of First Thessalonians, it will be very helpful to us as we continue into Second Thessalonians. Second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonian believers is by and large just this response letter to a good report concerning their reception to his first epistle. Recall the purpose of the first epistle. Paul had been forced to leave the church rapidly after founding it because of the extreme violence that was intended against him by the Jews on account of the gospel of Christ. He went into the city of Thessalonica with Timothy and with uh, Silas, Silvanus, he's called in, in these books. And as he went in, the reception was deeply negative by the Jews, so much so that Paul was forced to flee for his life from the city to Berea, and they even chased him to Berea to literally chase him out of the entire region. Due to this rapid departure, Paul had not had the opportunity to properly and what he felt would be sufficiently instruct the church concerning various aspects of doctrine and practice. He felt like he had to leave too soon. And this concerned him greatly as he left that church. He, he was very concerned for the church. Furthermore, the church had endured much suffering at the hand of the Jews and was in a place of discouragement, and at the time, before writing First Thessalonians, possibly borderline revolt against its leaders. When Paul wrote, in a very real way, the church was on the border of complete collapse. Now, the content of his letter was encouragement and exhortation in First Thessalonians. Encouragement that suffering is a part of the Christian life. That's what he said in chapter 1 encouragement to follow his example of endurance in the midst of suffering. That's what he taught them in chapter 2. Encouragement that those who had died at the hands of wicked men would be seen again when the Lord returns. It is through this encouragement that Paul gives what we call today the doctrine of the rapture. Not only teaching that Christ will come and bring the dead with him, but also teaching that there will be a generation of the church that will not see death, but will rather be caught up out of this world and that prior to the coming of the judgment of God upon this world that will take place throughout the seven years of tribulation. He taught about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In chapter 4, he gave exhortations unto holiness and unto brotherly love in the church. And then in chapter 5, that which we just finished last week, he gave exhortations unto watchfulness and unto purposeful obedience to the commands of God. Now, 2 Thessalonians then becomes the follow-up letter wherein Paul rejoices in their response to his teaching, that they responded well to his letter, and he urges them on to greater heights of understanding and obedience. And this will be our purpose throughout the book as well. We will, may I put it this way, urge each other on through tireless commitment to sound doctrine unto further understanding and obedience of the Word of God. 
on the back table. I just put them out there before the service began. But there is an outline uh, at the beginning of every book. I preach a book sermon and I give you an outline. And so that outline is on the back table. Um, if you'd like to get one at some point this evening before you leave, I encourage you to do so. And if you've been keeping all of those outlines, then you have outlines for many books, not not all 15, 16, 16 that we talked about this morning that we've covered since the church began. Because a few of those books, First John, Second John, Joshua, have been in Sunday school and in Tuesday evenings where I don't give outlines. But every book that I've covered since I've started the ministry here um, in, in AM or PM service, I've given outlines for. So I encourage you to keep those outlines. And by the end of the 20 some odd years it's going to take for us to get through all of the books, uh, you should have an outline for every book of the Bible. And that uh, would be a great resource to you. Now, this epistle begins with a very customary, a very common Pauline greeting. Uh, We're going to walk through the entire epistle. And verses 1 and 2 say this, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces himself, and he introduces those who are with him, who, like in the first epistle, were Sylvanus, who, if you remember, when we taught through that together, um, we discussed that this is, in fact, Silas. Paul and Silas went out together on the missionary journey, and this Sylvanus is, in fact, the same man, most very likely, as Silas. And then also Timotheus. Now, Sylvanus, say, how, how do you get that, Pastor? Well, we, we linked several things together, but uh, you know that Paul is, is a Greek name for the Hebrew man named Saul. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and he, he took on the name Paul to be his Greek name as he ministered to the Gentile world. And this was not uncommon, and this is a very similar thing that we, we see here with Silas. Silas was a Hebrew name, and uh, it would not surprise us, it should not surprise us, that he took on the Greek name Sylvanus as um, that name that he would use in the midst of a Gentile audience. And of course, the Thessalonians, being in Macedonia, they were indeed a part of the Gentile world. Now, indicative of a Pauline epistle, Paul wishes upon his readers grace and peace. We talked about this just last week as we finished, uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, as we were wrapping up the book. Uh, the, the idea of peace. The, actually, I guess it was last week, wasn't it? That, that God wants us to go out in peace. He wants us to rest in His peace. And He wants us to serve in peace. And we talked about how Paul always or regularly introduced his epistles with this idea of grace and peace unto the church that he was writing to. Paul is going to give some encouragement in this epistle. He's going to uh, give some exhortations in this epistle. And he's also going to give some rebuke. And in the midst of all of these things, Paul deeply desires that they would remember that everything that he's saying is within the context of the grace and the peace that they have in Christ. This great God has called them unto peace, unto a ministry of reconciliation secured by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God uh, is not uh, inspiring this Scripture and Paul is not writing this Scripture uh, for them to feel the condemnation of the devil, but rather that they would be urged onto greater and greater relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as they serve Him in grace and through peace. 
And the first topic on Paul's agenda as he walks through, um, as we walk through this epistle together, was also the first topic of Paul's agenda for the last letter. The testimony of God's people in the midst of suffering. The testimony of God's people in the midst of suffering. And we'll find this in verses 3 through 12. And you can, you'll see snippets of it up there this evening as we walk through it. Paul says in verse 4, We ourselves glory in you in all the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Paul praises God for their faith. He praises God for their love that they have exhibited in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. He rejoiced in their response to these circumstances. He rejoiced that they saw the bigger picture rather than just uh, seeing the, the difficulty that they're going through. He rejoiced that in the midst of trouble and tribulation, they lived constantly within the context of their understanding of God's grace toward them. They showed patience, a willingness to endure persecution, and they showed faith and unshakable confidence that in the midst, God has a plan. We spoke in Sunday school this morning about the fact that faith is belief in action. That the things that we know with our minds, the things that we understand about the Word of God, when we, when we use the, that understanding as the context with which we operate, we are exercising faith. And Paul is rejoicing in the reality that this church, the church of the, the Thessalonians here, has been patient in the midst of tribulation and has exercised faith that there has been a walk to their talk, that there has been action that backed up knowledge, that they didn't just know that what Paul said, that what Paul uh, told them about suffering and how they will uh, be, uh, that they will suffer persecution, that they will suffer for the name of Christ, and that uh, there's greater things coming if they will only wait for them. This wasn't just words to them. This became a reality. It compelled them unto living out what they knew to be true. But then Paul does something that he didn't do in the last letter. He turns his focus away from how the Thessalonians had responded to tribulation and he turns it toward their persecutors. And this is an interesting dynamic. In... um, Verse 6, Paul says this, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. I think I have a double slide there, Matt. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, there's, there's a little bit of a difference to that second slide. <laughs> Sorry, I threw myself off with that. Um, in the last epistle, Paul did not have total confidence that the church was going to respond properly to the tribulation that they were facing. That was one of the reasons why he wrote so earnestly. He was truly afraid, we might say concerned, that because he had not given them enough teaching, because he had to leave so quickly, that they were not going to have the foundation necessary to endure the trials that they were under. And therefore, their faith would crumble and the church itself would crumble. Paul's only priority in that epistle was to encourage patience and faith in the believers. 
He didn't focus upon God's vengeance. He didn't focus upon their persecutors because their motivation for endurance should not have been the fact that their persecutors are going to get it one day. Their motivation for their patience in the faith was to do with that they were going to obey God and they were going to emulate Christ and they recognized that Christ suffered persecution and that they should be willing to suffer it as well. But in this epistle, at this point, they had demonstrated their faith. They had demonstrated patience. Paul turns his teaching toward now their persecutors, reminding the Thessalonians that the vengeance of God would be meted out upon them. And so I I address again verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And he goes on to say in verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not hold anything back here in regard to the the fate of these who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are now turned their sights against the church of God. He boldly declares God's wrath. He contrasts it with God's pleasure that rests upon those who endure the affliction of the wicked. He tells the church that the vengeance of God will come in a flame of fire and declares this judgment to be reserved for all of those who have not openly obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says they are in the path of God's fiery judgment. Paul teaches that the judgment upon these unbelievers will be everlasting in scope. And we'll talk about that more when we get there in the text. And Paul teaches this, not with the intent that such devastation and suffering would inherently make the believers happy. He's not teaching this so that they'll think about their persecutors burning in the flames of hell and they'll have a smile on their face. Uh, One day they'll get theirs. He's teaching this so that it would accomplish the purpose of comforting their hearts in the midst of their own suffering, knowing that God is still watching, that God is keeping track, that God is taking account of those who have wronged His children, and that justice will be served. And this is pretty important for us as believers, isn't it? You know, we're coming into a time in our nation where things are getting worse for believers. Right now, most of the threats and most of the persecution, if we want to call it that, is, is in name only. A uh, person might lose a job here or there. A person might have to, to deal with some difficulties at a, at a school or at a workplace or certainly in a, in a government as far as their desire to live their lives openly for Christ. But by and large, there's still laws that protect our ability to meet together, our ability to share the gospel with others, our ability to to uh, have our own opinions on things. But there's coming a day where that will be gone. And as we look toward that and we think about the Christians that are being killed, beheaded for their faith in the Middle East and churches that are being burned to the ground and all of these things that are going on, does it not bring comfort to know that God is watching? Does it not allow us to endure with patience the affliction? We, we don't have to feel like we have to avenge ourselves because we are comforted in knowing that Christ will avenge us. And that's the purpose. The purpose is not that you can smile at the suffering of your enemies. The purpose is that you can do what you need to do today. You can exhort yourself in the Lord to 
be kind and loving and not to requite those that hate you, not to seek vengeance in this life because you know that God will bring vengeance in the life that is to come. And Paul's prayer for the church, he says in verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. His prayer for them in the midst of suffering and in light of the reality of the wicked, unbelieving world that persecutes them will without fail be judged, is that they will without fail be judged for their evil. And his prayer is that the church would walk worthy of God's calling upon their lives. Paul saw suffering not as an inconvenience, but rather as a calling. That if the church is enduring the shame and reproach of Christ, then they are doing so because God has called them unto that suffering, counted them worthy of this suffering, and knows them capable of enduring this suffering through Him. And this is a blessed thought. That whatever circumstances God has called us unto, we have the opportunity to walk worthy of them, to please God through our faith in the midst of them. That whether it's, uh, things are going well right now or whether things have been tough, that whether you've been enjoying uh, joy or whether you've been enjoying some degree of suffering, it is a comfort and a joy to know that in the midst of the tough times that you're going through them because God has allowed them and that you thus have the opportunity and the privilege of walking worthy of Him in the midst of them. And of course, we'll cover this when we get there, but let's just take a moment to consider the time and the place that God has called you unto. And I think specifically of the young people in our church, the time that God has called them unto, a time where morality is indeed waning, where culture has rejected Christ and His church in a way that has not been seen since the days that the United States was founded. A time when depravity rules the day. Moral relativism is pervasive. Truth is relative. Secular humanism is the religion of choice among the majority of the civilized world. We think about these things and our initial thought is what a terrible time to be a Christian. I could wish that I lived in an age where people respected the church and scriptures. There was a time where being a pastor in a city would mean something where you'd have a position of respect and honor in that city. Not anymore. I could wish that I lived in a time where biblical morality was still recognized. Where there was Bible literacy. I could wish that I lived in a time where our government had integrity, where I could trust them. But I don't. And from a certain point of view, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because though it's not an ideal environment for a Christian the society in which we live, God has seen fit to allow you to be one of His servants in this time. God has chosen you to be a minister to this apostate generation. God has called you to be a voice of truth shining in the darkness of this depraved culture. God is asking you to hold firm and to declare the Word of God to a culture that hates dogmatic assertions of truth and morality. 
we have the privilege of walking worthy of the Lord and His calling. We have the privilege to watch God use us in the midst of this generation. We have the privilege of being a light in the midst of deeper deeper darkness than any generation of Christians in the United States has known. And in this time, we get to fulfill the good pleasure of God's goodness and the work of faith with power. And if we're faithful, then just possibly we can be vessels through whom God is glorified. And that's an exciting thought. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian at such a time as this. One of the particular complications of the tremendous amount of persecution that the church of the Thessalonians had been under was that some of them felt, due to the high degree of suffering, that they were in the midst of God's final judgment. The suffering was, was severe and so severe that there were men in the church who, who felt as though they were already going through or they were in the midst of the seven years of tribulation, that the day of the Lord was thus soon at hand. In 1 Thessalonians, the suffering of the church led Paul to encourage them that their loved ones would join with Christ in his return. And um, as he caught the believers out of this world, a, a doctrine that we call the rapture, that those who had gone before, those who had died in Christ, Jesus Christ would bring with him. Now, this encouragement naturally led to this, this lesson on Christ's sure return for his own, an event which we call the rapture. In 2 Thessalonians, the suffering of the church led the church to think that maybe they were going through the tribulation, that the day of the Lord was very soon at hand. And this concern naturally leads Paul to a lesson on the sure and yet unfulfilled sign of the Lord's coming. And this sign of the Lord's coming, this sign that the tribulation has begun, is the presence of a man which Paul calls the man of sin. Paul encourages the church that they would not be so soon shaken in mind, he says, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So he, he says that he does not want them to think that the day of Christ is soon at hand, that meaning that the, the years of tribulation have already begun, and he says that it could not have been yet. He says in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Paul encourages the church that they would not be soon shaken. We'll talk about this when we get there, but Paul is not preaching against the doctrine of imminence, which states that the Lord's return could literally happen at any moment, or that we as believers must always be ready for the imminent return of Christ. Within this context, it becomes apparent that Paul is simply saying that these believers are not living within those final years of judgment, which the Bible says will precede the second advent of Christ. And the reason why Paul is so sure that this time was not yet nigh, that they were not yet in the seven year of tribulation, that the seven years had not yet come, was because the man of sin, this man of perdition, a word which literally means ruin or destruction, had not yet been revealed. And the Bible teaches that a man, a man called here that wicked, called the son of perdition, 
called the man of sin, a man who we know as the Antichrist, will be a major player in the final seven years of world history. At the beginning of this seven years, he will sign a peace treaty with Israel, or at least be instrumental in it. In the midst of these seven years, he will break that treaty and will seek to exalt himself as Israel's Messiah. Any student of history would know roughly when the tribulation would begin when they see this treaty signed. And this student of history would also be able to clearly identify Antichrist by identifying which world leader was instrumental in the authoring of this treaty with Israel. Now, since the man of sin had not yet been revealed, the Thessalonians' concerns were unfounded. And that is what Paul is telling them in the second chapter of the second epistle to the Thessalonians. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed, that being the Antichrist, in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Paul says that he has told them these things and he mentions that the mystery of iniquity, what in 1 John we we find to be called the spirit of Antichrist, is already and always working in this world. That man's desire to usurp Christ and to overthrow Christ, that the spirit of Antichrist is constant and active in this world. Once again, we as believers knowing this, you can easily trace through history men that have the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, The whole unbelieving world in a manner of speaking are Antichrist. But these men who truly hate the things of God, hate Christ and desire, they pursue pursue the overthrow of all that Christ is doing. Men like Friedrich Nietzsche, men like Adolf Hitler, men like Aldous Huxley, men who have shown themselves quite clearly to be those who have sold themselves to the spirit of Antichrist. But none of these men were successful. None of them were successful because Paul says, he that letteth, an old English word that means to restrain. He that restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. There is a restrainer, something or someone keeping this spirit of Antichrist at bay. And the spirit of Antichrist cannot have full power, cannot find full release, cannot come to full fruition upon the world until this restrainer is taken out of the way. And the scriptures say that when he is revealed, he who is destined to exalt himself against all that is called God, when the Antichrist is revealed... He who is endowed with the power of Satan to do great things, he will deceive this world into following him. And without the presence of the restrainer, the world will follow him into all unrighteousness. And so we see in chapter 2, he says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verses 11 and 12. Now as Paul continues, he says in verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God 
hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Paul reminds them of these things not to concern them about their own fate or about being deceived themselves by this Antichrist. In fact, Paul gives a definitive contrast beginning in verse 11 that, that in contrast to the world, which will be deceived and follow this man of sin, this man of perdition, the man called the wicked. They, on the other hand, are believers in Jesus Christ. They are those who have been redeemed from a spirit of unbelief. They have been given new life in Christ. They will not be duped by the spirit of Antichrist, for they have already overcome the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist, which is already working in this world, the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you overcame the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist cannot fool you, cannot deceive you, has no power over you. For you have been redeemed by Christ. You're a follower of Christ. You are no Antichrist, nor have you given in to the spirit of Antichrist. So he says in verse 16, now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul says they should be still, that they should be comforted, that they should be consoled in the hope that they have in Christ. They should not spend their time concerned about things which do not pertain unto them. Their understanding of the mystery of iniquity should compel them unto sanctification, unto every good work, not unto worry or unto fear. And that brings us to the final chapter of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, as we continue this overview. Paul says in the beginning of verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. The focus of chapter 3 are these good words and works that Paul desires them to be established in. He said in chapter 2, verse 17, that they would be established in, word, in good word and works. What are these? Well, he exhorts them first to pray. To pray for Paul and his fellow ministers. To pray for their effectiveness in spreading the gospel. He tells them, you're in the midst of suffering. This is not the end times. That, that is yet to come. The man of sin has not been revealed while there is still time left while the restrainer is still active in his ministry of restraining, while there's still work to be done, pray for us that we could do the work effectively. A gospel, which is the only thing that can deliver man out of the deceit of the mystery of iniquity, pray that it would go forth with clarity. The gospel, which at every turn is opposed by wicked men who have sold themselves unto evil, pray that it would have power and effectiveness. And he exhorts them unto obedience. Not just prayer, but obedience that as they free their minds from the concern and the distractions of that which is not their fate, the tribulation, they can turn their minds toward the responsibility that God has asked of them today. It's not uncommon for believers to be distracted with theological concerns and debates which have little profit other than to distract their minds and their efforts from those things which are truly important. We kind of say it this way at Legacy Baptist Church that oftentimes we Christians are so busy arguing about what's between the lines of the Scripture that we forget to read the lines themselves. We're so busy uh, bickering and arguing and, and concerning ourselves with the things that are unclear that we forget to even obey the things that are clear. Let's focus on the things that are clear and then maybe the Holy Spirit of God will bless us with wisdom in regard to those things that are not clear. 
Christ said it this way, that in a spiritual sense, religious people have a tendency to strain at gnats but swallow camels. Paul turns his attention then, as we continue in the text, toward a matter of deep practical importance to him in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. It would seem that there were some in the church who had chosen to be idle, to not work for their living, perhaps living off of the charity of the church. Maybe it was because they thought that the Lord was about to return. And so they kind of did what, what we see people do when they uh, date set in history. We've seen various times in history where the church has set dates for the return of Christ. And so those that sold themselves unto this theory of the right date, the date that Christ would come, sold everything that they had and gave all of their possessions away and then went and sat up on a hill and waited for the time when the Lord would come. And we've seen a few of those in history. As a matter of fact, an entire denomination arose out of one of these date settings. The Seventh-day Adventists are an entire denomination that arose through the great controversy surrounding a man who set a date for when when Christ would return. And as we consider... This, there were people in the church who were idle. They were not working. Paul states that these people were walking disorderly. They were not walking according to the truth of God's Word, which Paul had both taught and demonstrated in his own life. And whether or not their motivation was that they felt the end of the world was coming, Paul was greatly displeased with this lifestyle with the lifestyle of these brethren in the church. And he called upon the others, if they would not repent of this, to immediately withdraw themselves from the fellowship of these disorderly believers. That if a man is not willing to labor in honesty and integrity, not willing to work to support his family and those he loves, then he should not eat. And Paul reiterates the need for the separation in verse 14. He says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. If a man refuses to obey the exhortation of Paul unto orderly conduct, unto integrity, unto work ethic, that the church should mark him from out of the crowd and should have no company with him with the intent that the shame of that man for having been removed from the church fellowship would bring him to a place of repentance. And Paul states specifically in verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This was not to be the kind of separation that we see from time to time in the church where things are deeply hostile and angry and they kick a person out of the church and they won't talk to them and they won't make eye contact with them. This was intended to be a removal from fellowship with the intent that they would repent of their disobedience. They would then be restored back into fellowship with the church. It was intended to be a mournful separation. One that would make the the person separated from ashamed one that would not be pleasant for the church to go through, one that would be done in humility and love, not an angry, embittered, resentful, or judgmental separation where they would remove a person and then simply 
cast them out to the world to be devoured. Paul then gives his benediction, praying that the God of peace would be with them all. He says in verse 16, Now the Lord of peace give himself, excuse me, himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thus ends the second epistle to the Thessalonians. Over the next several months, we will learn much from God and His Word in this epistle. But today, as we've taken a step back and um, we've looked at the forest before we actually get into the trees, there are some general lessons that we can take with us as well. Three applications as we close. And the first being this. Remember, God will avenge you. Remember, God will avenge you. If you've never suffered for the name of Christ and you're a believer, rest assured at some point you will. There are a few things more genuinely frustrating for believers than to suffer indignity and reproach for things that you absolutely know are correct. To be called ignorant or bigoted or judgmental because you hold loyalty to the truth. To watch people spurn you and hate you because they don't believe the Bible and therefore don't understand truth, but are convinced that you are the problem. You are the one who is in error. To be yelled at and shunned because you love God. To lose out on a job promotion or family privileges or other opportunities because you claim the name of Christ. To see a society that calls us the problem when we're holding down jobs and we're raising families to love the Lord and to be good citizens and to do what is right and to see a society turn on us and say that we are the problem with society because we're not willing to let people go toward every sexual debauchery without calling it sin because we're we're not willing to just give up on the family that God has established for the proliferation of faith from one generation to the other. We are therefore and have become the problem and this can be very frustrating, can't it? When these things happen, knowing what we know, everything in us wants to avenge these wrongs against us or to change so that they no longer persecute us. Those are the two reactions that we want. Either I'm going to seek vengeance upon those that have hurt me or wronged me or I'm just going to change so that they won't persecute me anymore. But as Paul looked at the Thessalonian church, He was pleased at their response and encouraged them to maintain their obedience to God, to trust that there is coming a day when if we will maintain loyalty to God's word, if we will refuse to avenge ourselves or change that which we know to be true, God will vindicate us. This means that in every area of life, we must walk by faith. And if we will do so, we will find that God will do a far better job at avenging us than we could do at avenging ourselves. And furthermore, our actions and our reactions will please God, secure great favor in the eyes of God, and be a testimony to the world around us of God's goodness. So remember, in the midst of whatever persecution the unbelieving world sends your way, that God is your avenger. Second application point. Remember, Evil's day will climax, but will then come to a swift end. Evil is in this world. Evil is active in this world. Evil is actively seeking to destroy, to subvert, to deceive, to confuse. And evil is very good at what it does. 
I don't know if you've ever had somebody that you've been working with about the Gospel, that you've been showing uh, truths about the Word of God, and you have watched as the evil that is in this world has re-ensnared them, has brought them back to a state of confusion, and you've been sorrowful as you've seen somebody who started to taste the truth of God's Word fall back into the evil that surrounds them. That evil grabbed a hold of them once again and consumed them once again. Evil, however, is still being restrained by a divine decree of God and regardless of the designs of evil men and Satan himself, they are all subject to God's sovereign will and God's perfect timing. Evil cannot come to full fruition until God removes the restraining force from this world. And there is coming a day when that restraining force will be lifted. And, it, and evil then will be free to work its wickedness to the fullest extent of its power in the hearts of men. The people of this world, persisting in their unbelief, will follow the, this evil indiscriminately. For everything and everyone that could call their minds and hearts back to the truth will have been divinely taken out of the way. And so we, we can make no mistake here that, that dark days are coming. Days darker than the darkest hours history has ever known are coming. A man more evil and filled with more hatred for God than any man this world has ever recorded is coming. But just as sure as we are that there's coming a man of sin, a son of perdition, a wicked man sold unto evil, with just as much certainty, we know that this man will be destroyed in the just and righteous judgment of the Almighty God. With just as much certainty, we know that evil may have its day to reign, but that that day will be short, and that evil's end will be swift, and that it will be a complete end. And as we watch evil all around us at work, we should not be surprised. When we see our government sell itself to evil, we should not be surprised. When we watch our culture magnify and glorify its evil, we should not be surprised. Should we settle? No. Should we bury our heads in the sand? No. But it shouldn't surprise us. The only thing that restrains evil is the truth of God's Word ministered in the hearts of men through His Holy Spirit. And the Bible and the God of the Bible is rejected, and as he is rejected, the natural and absolutely unavoidable results of that rejection is evil. But their day is only temporary. God's day, the day that follows evil's day, God's day is eternal. So remember, remember that God will avenge you. Remember, evil's day will climax, but then it will come to a swift end. Third and finally, remember that your responsibility, my responsibility, our responsibility is to the purity of the truth. You suffer all the time remembering that God will avenge you. You grieve as you watch your society spiral into sin, knowing that you have the answer, not in yourself, but in the Word of God, which you hold in your hands, which you have believed with your heart, which you've placed into your heart. You know that evil will come to an end. And in this we are encouraged, but we also weep for the many who are on the wrong side of judgment. And how should we respond? What should we do? What can we do in light of all that we know? 
Well, what we can do is maintain our loyalty to the truth. What we can do is live the truth, obey the truth, tell others about the truth. The best thing we can do is to not be moved by that which we see and know, but rather be deeply motivated to hold to the truth and to lead others unto the truth. People hurt us and hate us. Love them. Pray for them. Lead them to the truth. Evil persists all around us. Show people that evil is error by being a shining example of the truth. Don't be like those Christians who claim Christ but don't obey the Bible. Their contradictory lifestyle, their willingness to compromise is as damaging to the truth as the evil of men. Don't tolerate other Christians who claim the Bible but don't believe the Bible. Paul says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Separate from these believers for their own sake. Lovingly correct them and call them back into the truth. Truth. See, truth is all that matters in this life and the next. God is all that matters in this life and the next. And our privilege, as we consider the overview of Second Thessalonians, our privilege in this world, our part in this world, is to stand on the side of truth, to point others to the truth, to shine forth the truth, to love the truth, to speak the truth, and to guide the next generation unto the truth. Let's pray together.